You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. It's Tuesday, October 15th. It's Tuesday, which means we have our weekly tech panel in studio. We'll be talking about Libra dropouts, Uber layoffs, and the battleground that is grocery delivery services. But first, a couple of events I want to bring your attention to. On October 17th, we celebrate BC's fastest-growing companies. Our annual Top 100 list is out. The event will be hosted at Audi Downtown Vancouver, and it's a great chance to meet a network with companies that really have seen remarkable growth over the last five years. We're talking, in some cases, a five-digit percentage growth. This is an event you won't want to miss. You can find more information at BIV.com slash events. And we hope you join us to celebrate BC's top leadership when BIV presents the BC CEO Awards November 13th at the Fairmont Waterfront. Winning CEOs will be honored at a gala dinner where each winner will share their leadership lessons to an audience of Vancouver's business community. For more information on that event, check out BIV.com slash BC CEO awards. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. In studio with me this morning, Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society. Good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Haley. And Owen Ingram, CTO at Easy Market. Good to have you back as well. Thank you, Haley. We have a number of topics to get to today, but why don't we start with Libra? This is Facebook's crypto project and the Libra Association, the membership kind of around launching this, had its first formal meeting this week. But it's a few launch partners lighter. PayPal, which I think we talked about, as well as Visa, MasterCard, Stripe, and a few others have backed away from the project days before they were to have this meeting. Linda, does this seriously threaten the credibility of this project when you have Visa, MasterCard, eBay, Stripe backing away from being involved? Yes, it does. These are uh, payment processors who know what they're doing in the digital payment realm. And for them to back away uh, clearly signals that uh, there's concerns about the project. How is it going to move forward? How is it going to be regulated? How is it going to work with governments around the world? So these very stand-up digital economy players are saving their reputations by backing away. I think the letter from the Senate Banking Committee, which I read online, which is an interesting read, was very, very direct. You guys go into Libra without us regulating it, and we're looking at all of your financial transactions, not just the online digital piece. Um, So it is a big hit for them. Having said that, uh, David Marcus this morning is saying they got 1,500 possible new uh, companies replacing the ones that have backed down, 180 of whom are potentially verified as potential Libra partners. So they'll get the $10 million per partner, it looks like. Um, They will continue to march forward. But without the big payment vendors in there verifying this, I'm not sure. And of course, without regulatory approval, how does Libra move forward in any kind of uh, proper country, right? Proper region. The EU is going to bat, is going to say no to it. France is very firm. Germany is very firm. The US is very firm. It's not going to happen without this being very different from what Marcus and the Libra team are proposing. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Owen, because there's still big backers like Uber and Spotify. But as Linda pointed out, not in the payment space. I think there's just one left. Is it possible for a consortium of non-financial fintech companies to make something of this? Or do you kind of need a Visa or a bank or a PayPal to get on board? What do you think? Yeah, the MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, 
um, Stripe. That was really the magic of this project. Um, yeah, having uh, other um, like consumers of payments will definitely help. But um, yeah, no, those big players was what was gonna really take it, you know, rapidly into something big. I think what happened is they listened to our podcast and they moonwalked <laughs> away from this whole project because they're just we scared. have the power. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, but I think the heart of the whole thing is is gone. Mind you, it's still, you know, a lot of great players, so they could slowly grow this, which is what they should do, uh, and work with regulators. And it has so much visibility in the regulation world and government world that I think it uh, it could be, could turn out to be uh, somewhat of a, you know, real benefit, actually, that they're taking it slow and don't have so much muscle at the beginning of it. Well, that's what Marcus is saying on his Twitter feed. He's saying, this is good news. It's a, the pressure's off. We can now kind of proceed... I'm not sure how he thinks the pressure's off, but the, I guess the payment regulators, the payment vendors are are no longer involved, so they can kind of proceed at their own pace. But he said, you know, back in September, if this um, is, if Libra is considered Zuckbucks or Facecoin or anything um, <laughs> tied to Facebook, it won't happen. That's what Marcus himself was saying back in September. The letter from the banking, the Senate Banking Committee, was referencing the New York Times article that says, of the 18 and a half million child porn um, photos and videos, four or 12 million of those were found to be coming through Facebook Messenger. So they're saying we do not want an encrypted messaging platform tied with an anonymous global payments platform. That is not good for the planet. That is really good for criminal activity, and we will shut that down. So the Senate Banking Committee is tying this directly to Facebook. We're all talking about it like it's Zuckbucks. So as, as long as Facebook is in the driver's seat, uh, despite the board being appointed yesterday in Geneva for the Labor Association. This is still a Facebook-backed initiative. As long as that happens, I don't see it being passed by any reasonable regulator on the planet. That's an interesting point and totally totally fair. If they can't figure out their own, if Facebook can't figure out its own uh, regulation you know, internally from stopping horrendous stuff, then obviously what chance does a cryptocurrency have? And and sorry to interrupt here, but another point is we're talking about a global currency. We I think as citizens of the planet, we don't want a private company uh, driving that initiative. We need this to be a conversation of citizens and companies and governments and organizations to make these potential global currencies happen. And we see companies like Amazon not needing to go down this road. They don't need to create their own currency because they're playing with all the big guys. They're playing with Pay, PayPal and Stripe and Visa and MasterCard to handle digital payments. So so it's it's a difficult initiative and I'm personally very uncomfortable with it. I do though believe it's pushing forward. It's not going anywhere quite yet. Yeah, and hopefully it just goes to the arenas that we want it to, which is the unbanked and people who would really benefit from it. Right. Yeah. I I wonder because when we look at the project, it stands a lot to gain a lot from having a visa involved. The reputation, companies that are very familiar and comfortable operating in a highly regulated space that maybe work closely or more closely with regulators than the Facebooks and the Ubers of the world do. They have different track records. But what does a visa or a MasterCard gain from being part of this? I mean, they're quite successful in the payment space. Do they have anything to gain from disrupting how yeah. these systems operate, which is what Facebook has said its goal is? Data. Data. data and data. It's always data. Imagine what they gain if they're able to look at 
your experience with shopping, the way you spend, where you spend, how you react to whatever comes across the screen on your phone. If we're talking about a payment system, the Calibra wallet integrated with your social media life, which basically means this this Facebook wallet is your life, right? Mm. Owen sends me a link to a new restaurant in Facebook. I click over, I book my open table uh, reservation. That is that all of that data is tracking to all the participants in the Libra Association. So so in my opinion, the big financial players, Facebook, PayPal, etc. Sorry, um, Stripe, PayPal, MasterCard, Visa, they are all in this for the data piece, they're obviously going to make some money on it. And it's perhaps an initiative they want to be part of eventually, but I believe it's it's data first. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> also makes sense they wouldn't be interested if it's super, you know, regulated or at least uh, you know, uh, positioned as being something that is private and, and you know, citizens have their digital rights because then they wouldn't be able to look at all this data. So there there's no real benefit for them. Um apart from just the technology side, I know that MasterCard and Visa are both uh, trying to you know expand and more and more into technology. I uh, lost a talented data scientist to MasterCard doing a lot of uh, research, um, more on the fraud side of things. But I know they have a lot of data behind their uh, behind those walls. I'm sure. Any thoughts on there's 180 companies or so that are qualified leads that they're looking at? Who would be a really great get for the Libra Association on the payments or banking or fintech side? For the African world, uh, it would be yeah the carriers. Um, I don't know of the if how how far they've gotten into particip- participation, mm-hmm. but those would be the ones that would benefit the most. Uh, those um, you know carrier networks are very old, and so um, I'd imagine even with newish technology, it would be much better for currencies to work on a you know on a blockchain. An Alibaba, a WeChat, or a Royal mm-hmm. Bank of Canada. Any one of those three would shake things up. Not Royal Bank quite so much, but but any one of those vendors would really game change this thing. And any bank that would say we like IBM stepping up, we are interested, Libra. We just need to see more. So that's what IBM is saying. So that's an interesting one for IBM to actually come out publicly and say that while all of this exodus was happening yesterday. Yeah. Interesting. Moving on to our next topic, and that's Uber. Uber has laid off about 1% of its workforce. The company says it's the third and final phase of layoffs. It's laid off close to 1,200 people in the last six months, this latest round at 350 people. We've talked about this before, and Owen, some of your comments have been around this growth as a must, growth at any cost mandate that we see these companies have sometimes. Does this signal a shift that Uber has grown at any cost, and now it's having to rein that growth back in a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. They probably listened to our podcast again. Again. So uh, so they're doing what we suggest to, you know, solidify their company and to rein it back uh, to get it profitable or at least, you know, trending in a better direction. Um, You know, it's exactly what a company should do. They were too aggressive, overhired, and now they're scaling back. It's unfortunate for the people who are, Mm -hmm. um, you know, not able to come to work the next day, but um, it's what Uber should be doing. And then they can actually turn into, um, you know, a, a solid company that is able to survive. Right. Yeah, they've got their third quarter earnings coming out in November. Um, shareholders are not happy. They're down roughly 25, 30% from their IPO price. Um, they've also, uh, they got t- with 27,000 full-time employees, these layoff numbers seem big, but they're not big. Uh, and they need to show cost-cutting. 
shareholders are getting antsy. Ride sharing is not profitable. Uber Eats is not profitable. How are you guys going to make money? And where are we saving money in the meantime? Um, and with a, one of the darlings of the IPO market before they went public, this has been a really distressing story for shareholders. So it'll be interesting to see if that lockup in the shares that uh, is released in November, if that's going to sort of uh, spur a bit of a sell-off on the shares. We'll see. But they needed some good news and Perhaps this is a little good news. We're trying to cost cut by getting rid of a bunch of people and being smarter about how we work. That's important. Yeah, we'll see if it's enough to stop a, a big uh, flood of, of sales. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Or at least indicate that it's serious, right, about cutting costs and riding the ship, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, Uber also chasing growth in certain areas. It has a planned acquisition of Corner Shop, which is a grocery delivery service in Latin America. Interestingly, it recently expanded to Toronto and is partnered with Walmart Canada here in Canada. On the grocery war scene, is there a clear winner? Is this a, a clear space where Uber could thrive? You mentioned Uber Eats not profitable, and yet could it maybe be profitable? Yeah, the, the gig labor, I guess, would make a lot of sense in Latin America and perhaps places where the uh, units of economics work better, um, where it's not uh, something that is taking away from uh, you know, uh, full-time work with uh, with benefits that you could be having, but maybe this is something that is a, is a substantial amount. I don't know Latin America, but I would imagine that um, you know some underserved markets, from our opinion, on the tech side of things, would, would it would make sense to move into those markets. Yeah, and we also see the bricks and mortar retailers. It's a trillion dollar a year business that their e-commerce side is growing almost thirty percent year year over year, but the digital sales component of that is just five percent of their income. So mm -hmm. this is a hugely profitable space potentially that Uber needs to get into. They need to do something more with this driver network that they're creating because ride sharing and Uber Eats isn't just going to cut it alone. So this freight piece is important for them. And this grocery delivery, we know that groceries are finally going to get delivered efficiently to our doors. At some point, we'll get milk and lettuce and cheese if we want it, not just hamburgers and pizza. Um, and so are they going to be instrumental in being on the front of this wave as grocery delivery becomes viable. And I think it's smart for them to position themselves there. Um, it's interesting. They needed to partner with someone to do it, corner shop, but um, Walmart lost out on that deal. Right. So will it be approved by regulators? It looks like it might be because Uber has no other grocery delivery service at this point. So we're finally going to get back to a milkman coming with some milk. It'd be, it'd be <laughs> the it's the future. But we'll get Uber groceries before we get an Uber car. Picking right. us up in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, probably. Does it make more sense to have a company like Uber running this service for retailers? Or does it make more sense to have, say, a company like Walmart that's integrated vertically? It has the delivery system. It also has the supplier networks and it has the retail location. Well, take Amazon and Walmart out of it because they've got big bucks to have these big departments of smart people creating their tech for them. But all the other retailers is where Corner Shop is coming to play and Instacart, right? And so all those other retailers, the bricks and mortar stores need a way to get to our door profitably, right. efficiently, that doesn't cost the user, us, too much money. Corner Shop's an expensive delivery option. It's mm -hmm. a nice to have. But eventually, I'm going to want to buy from all of my local retailers without having to pop into their physical store that often. And um, this is, uh, therefore, 
a really important space to expand into. So the Walmarts and the Amazons are going to continue to own it, but there's going to be third parties like Instacart, perhaps like Uber, uh, owning it for the rest of the retailers in this massive growing market. That's a really great point. And if we can combine those mom and pop shops and little local stores that have great angles on local produce, then um, then they could maybe compete, you know, with this technology against the Walmarts and, and the Amazons, uh, you know, Amazon owning, owning uh, Whole Foods now. Um, that would be awesome. I would love to see that to compete against them. Um, specifically, Walmart, people don't know, but they, um, you know, their brand is a bit uh, tricky this way because you don't expect it, but they have huge amounts of technology uh, behind the scenes and uh, a lot of money being put into it. So uh, it would be lovely to see a competitor to that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just going to be the groceries that'll be delivered, right? We'll be able to buy shaving cream and t-shirts and flowers from our local vendors too. So it's an interesting way to bring digital into our local environments. I don't want to take off my VR headset to go shopping. So this is great. <laughs> could just force feed me in a tube. I was and, say, can you take yeah. it off while we're in the podcast? Though? Yeah. It's a bit weird. <laughs> I'm in Mexico right now. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of going like back to the future, having milk delivered to us directly, groceries delivered. Everyone I speak to loves the idea. I only know one person that at present has part of their groceries delivered, not even all their groceries. What does it take for this to really be common practices of price lord user price experience point? oh my gosh experience. i try so hard to get my groceries delivered and the <laughs> user experience is awful I, I give up like after two or three screens or i filled up the shopping cart with everything i think i need and then there's some horrible back end that gives me a reason that i have to abandon the cart five or six times now so as soon as someone cracks that user piece and it really is simple to use um and uh, obviously the payment side is done, right? We know yeah, that we're yeah. secure in the payments. It's really just let me get my stuff in my cart, hit the button and go in less time than it takes me to drive to the store and do it myself. Yeah, maybe we're oversimplifying, but they have the warehouse, you know, the store. Um, they have the payment, the online system's already made. So really just the last piece of the puzzle there, if mm -hmm. they can nail that one down. I agree, it's the user experience that is still really lacking. It's all the tech, right? Yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed we get there. Probably it's it's coming, I'm sure. I have no doubts about that. On the same theme, Instacart actually partnered with Walmart Canada here. But on another note, there are thousands of Instacart shoppers planning to go protest in the U.S. at the start of November. They're asking for a couple of things. One is the elimination of a service fee, a 10% default tip, and getting 100% of the tip. I brought this up because they're talking a little bit about the gig economy and we've spoken before about Uber and the employment challenges it's had. Oh, and does the gig economy scale when we're talking about big companies using a large pool of gig workers as opposed to, say, one-off instances? Because we've seen so many problems when it comes to employment rights and labor rights. Yeah, so I think it definitely can. Uh, what Uber is doing with you know the the ride sharing and and expanding to transit and all the rest of it is probably the angle that would make the most economic sense. But for the Instacart one, um, they're just trying to get their tips. I mean, it seems really straightforward. They mm -hmm. they should definitely get, be getting their tips fully, and it should be more than five percent. Um, I think that that's completely fair and reasonable. The fact that they have to protest around that is very strange. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely think gig economies could work. Um, I think it's very much the right and you know the responsibility of all these people involved to uh, join together and to have a strong voice and so make sure that uh, they aren't the one on the budget that's getting reduced. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing though is these services, these gig 
economy services are subsidized by their IPO dollars, by their marketing budgets. Um, in Instacart's case, they're saying they're profitable on every delivery, but we can't know that because we don't know how much they spend on marketing, Or right? They're not releasing those financials yet. So while these subsidized services exist, we don't know if the gig economy is viable with these apps, right? Like what happened if all of these companies had to be profitable as their shareholders are going to eventually require? Is a $15 an hour minimum wage for the shoppers or the gig economy workers viable? Does that make the whole model fall apart? And when we're talking about tips, I do find it a little irksome as a user of these services to pay for a tip to pay for a service fee, perhaps a delivery fee. This is expensive now for me. So so if we're talking about groceries being delivered as a, a, a natural order of my week, it cannot seem like an expensive nice to have. It's got to be uh, affordable. What we also see is the retailers participating in Instacart are raising the prices for Instacart items, right, to offset uh, what, I don't know, whatever profit margins they they think they need to grow. So I don't know if this gig thing works. And I like the idea that in this Instacart um, strike, effectively, the employees are going to have in November that they're reaching out to other gig economy workers at Amazon and other places. So hopefully the gig people create kind of a union almost of themselves. Yeah. And I think it comes down to the naming conventions on a sort of a tangent. Soylent is coming back to Canada because after a few years of battling the naming convention of... um, meal replacement, they were able to get back. Uh, Soylent is a meal replacement uh, that's kind of a Silicon Valley star. Um, but the gig economy, the the idea of a gig is it, it, that it's not full-time work, that you're not employed. It, um, it's supposed to be, you know, an adjunct to your regular career. Um, uh, you know, maybe you're going to school or, um, or you have some extra time in your schedule. Um, and so that's where it's very tricky because Uber is not really necessarily promoting the fact that it, this is not supposed to be your uh, your career path. Um, it, it should be a gig, like uh, imagine you're a jazz musician and this is a gig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's where it gets tricky because they're they're not doing a good job of really um, really telling everyone that this is supposed to be a gig because of course, there's not that many people that will take it on as a gig for just you know kind of for fun and for um, for a small amount of cash. People want this to be a real, career and which is totally fair uh, because that's what they're sold so I think it has to do with the naming and how they're marketing it and I think perhaps you know this is where the California regulation really comes into play are you a gig or are you an employer uh, what is this but even in our side hustle we want to make money fair money hey so fifteen dollars an hour is what they're aiming for Amazon came out with eighteen dollars an hour looking like heroes when they did that but that forces the gig person to provide their own car, pay for their own insurance, mm-hmm. uh, pay for their own gas and mileage, et cetera. Where the $15 an hour um, Instacart workers are saying, we also want you to pay for our mileage. We want you to compensate us for the wear and tear in our vehicles, et cetera. So the side hustle, the gig work needs to be fairly compensated. And I think it's only being sort of compensated for now because they're using uh, incentives and marketing dollars from other budgets in these companies to prop up these non-profitable services. So I don't I don't like the way it's going to move. As soon as these these things need to be profitable, you know that the gig economy workers are going to be the ones that are hit with more work for less money at some point, unless they organize and get some legislation in place to protect themselves. Yes, absolutely. And that's the, the whole key of this. The fact that all of the gig workers for Uber, um, they know that it's 
hemorrhaging cash. Um, it's kind of a tricky position because they've also completely disrupted the you know regular taxi systems throughout the world. So they actually have to make this work. It would be very immoral for them to actually um, try to you know scrape by instead of focus on some some breakthroughs and some ways of uh, you know perhaps excluding certain markets to make sure that this is a viable option because um, yeah because there's a lot of people dependent on it now. But you know if we're Uber, let's pretend we're on the board at Uber. If we're Uber, maybe our um, eats and car sharing or car um, service is break even because we're making money at grocery and freight. Right. We just need this network to be active and working and moving around the city. We don't necessarily need to make money in every area we're operating in, but we can potentially make a lot of money in grocery delivery and we can make a lot of money in freight. So perhaps that's where they're they're angling to. But that still requires us as the board members to figure out what is that rate these drivers are going to stay at happily participating in our network because Uber is nothing without the people. Instacart does not work without their shoppers. This isn't a robot economy quite yet. Yeah, and there's the last lever, which is to raise the prices on the um, on the consumers, uh, which they know will slow the growth and slow everything down. But I'm hoping that there's enough margin in there that that is an option that us BARD members would take uh, in order to pay the proper wages for the actual employees that we have. Yeah. I've heard that services like Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, it's 30% in addition to or out of what the restaurant gets. So either the prices are 30% more or they take a 30% cut, which is significant. If you're a small mom and pop shop, you don't have the capacity to do your own deliveries. 30%. That's Or you raise your prices before you launch into Uber Eats or Grubhub right. or something. That's what a lot of these guys are doing. They're scrapping, they're shredding their old menu, they're increasing prices by 30%, yeah. and then they're hopping on the service. So we, we as consumers are going to be the end, the people footing the bill at the end. So are we willing to pay inflated prices to eat at home or not have to go to the store? The answer is probably yes, when you factor in your time and weather and Price other considerations. Gas. Yeah transportation yeah. yeah interesting well there's a lot of good advice we're going to check back in two weeks and see if the big tech companies of the world <laughs> for, took any of our for advice. our next board meeting yes exactly but for now owen linda thank you very much thank you thank you that's owen ingram cto at easy market and linda Falk is ceo of glue technology society that's it for our show thanks for listening to biv today you can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on itunes and stitcher you can also listen to all of our episodes at biv.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.